Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Mark this morning, Mark chapter 2. In a moment, we'll read the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 2. And what a good reminder that we just read, the wrong shall fail, the right prevail. That's our hope. And that's our hope as we come to God's Word this Sunday and every Sunday. It's our hope because we experience so much wrong in the world. So much brokenness, so much disappointment, so much sin. And yet it does not win in the end. It will not win. It cannot win. The right will prevail. Because the right and true king prevails. It's him who we want to learn about more today. So would you stand as we read Mark 2, the first 12 verses together. When I get to the end of verse 12, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we will say, thanks be to God. Hear the word of the Lord. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose 
and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, what we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. And what we are not, make us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Who is Jesus? It's a question that we've been wrestling with the past few weeks as we've been going through our Advent series. It's a question asked with simplicity. But the answer comes with some complexity, but it is always clear. It's a question which we cannot assume that we know the answer to. Like the kid in the classroom after the teacher asks a question who frantically raises their hand saying, ooh, ooh, call on me. And with all of the confidence and all of the assurance as they're called upon, they blurt out the answer only to be told that they haven't got the answer right. It would be a failure for us if we had that question before us, who is Jesus? We thought we knew the answer with such certainty and such confidence, only to find out that we hadn't got it right. The question, who is Jesus, is a fundamental question, a very necessary question, yet how many believe it to be an optional question? A question upon which not too much hangs, not much at stake in this question. And as we've been unpacking various components of this question, we come to see that this question, who is Jesus, leads us inevitably to another question. Who am I? The identity of Jesus when understood accurately, intersects with our own identity, with who I am. Who he is affects and changes who we are. And if it doesn't, we've gotten the answer to the question entirely and completely wrong. When you meet Jesus, when you understand what he says and what he does. You may be drawn to him or you may be disturbed by him, but you are never indifferent to him. As we come to consider Jesus, consider ourselves, and there is another fundamental question that every person asks themselves, why am I here? 
what is my purpose in life? What is the meaning I find in life? Without purpose, without a reason for existence, we are like a boat that becomes unmoored. We have no anchor to keep us in place. We're tossed about, carried about by winds and waves. We're drifting this way and that. A boat that is unmoored has no direction. There's no living that is intentional. No wind that would fill our sails to take us to the desired end or purpose or goal. How many today in our world are unclear or confused about their purpose in life? Maybe you are here today and that question tugs at your own heart, weighs heavy on you for good reason. You want your life to count for something. You want your life to be meaningful. You want your life in the end to have gone somewhere. To have done something, to have a sense of accomplishment, to be a part of something that is bigger, something greater, something that is of value and of worth, something that brings satisfaction to your restless soul. These longings and these desires are in you for a reason. God put them there. He designed you to have a sense of purpose. He is the one who not only wants your life to be meaningful, He gives meaning to your life. He gives you a reason for your very existence. You were created in the image of God to serve a purpose. Are we teaching that to our children, to our grandchildren? Are we asking the question at a young age, what are you going to do with your life? Who are you going to be? What direction do you think the Lord would have you to go? We should get back to reading books like this book that's entitled, Maybe You Should Fly a Jet, Maybe You Should Be a Vet, where Dr. Seuss asks questions like this, want to be a ticket taker, want to be a pizza maker, general, jockey, basketball player, ballet dancer, dragon slayer? Do you want to be an astronaut or keeper of the zoo? You've got to do something. What do you want to do? Our kids and grandkids might change and develop over the year, but that's okay. Because we're not trying to steer them particularly to a career or vocation that we want them to have. We are instilling them with something more. We are teaching them biblical truth. They were created for a purpose by their Creator. Such biblical truth leads to greater discussions about the purpose of mankind. 
we together have a shared purpose in this world. Yes, each one producing, each one tilling, each one having their purpose for which God has designed them, but it directs us to a question, the very first question of a catechism, the Westminster Catechism, which asks this question, what is the chief end of man? Think about it. These people got together and they say, okay, we need to teach biblical truth to Christians. We need to catechize them. We need to ask them questions. And then there's these answers that are supposed to go that, and they're like, what's the first question that they need to know the answer to? (laughs) What's your chief purpose? What's your chief end? This is the fundamental, crucial truth for our lives. And so what's the answer? It has to do with purpose. It has to do with meaning. It gets to the very heart of why we were created and why we exist. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And it's one thing to know the answer to that question. It's another thing to live out the answer to that question. It's easy to say it. It's much more difficult to live it out. Would we ever consider the purpose and the direction of our lives that these are directly tied to the purpose and work of Jesus Christ? It is a futile effort if you think that you'll be able to find purpose and ultimate meaning apart from Jesus Christ. So we have to know then, why did Jesus come into this world? What was the purpose of his life? And in short, the purpose of Jesus' life was to fulfill the purpose and work of God. He came to do the will of his Father, and he did it perfectly. He accomplished precisely what the Father intended him to accomplish. He fulfilled God's plan. And Jesus makes this explicit in the Gospels, and particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in what we can call the I have come statements. For what purpose has Jesus come into this world? Well, Jesus says these things. I have come that I might preach, Mark 1, 38. I have come not to call the righteous but sinners, Mark 2, 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law and prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them, Matthew 5, 17. I have come to cast fire onto the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Luke 12, 49. Do not think I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace but division. Luke 12, 51. For I have come to divide a man against his father and daughter against mother and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, etc., etc. Matthew 10, 35. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19, 10. Very direct statements. I have come, I have come, I have come to do all of these things. And each one could be its own sermon. But this morning, I want to draw our attention to an event that happens at the beginning of Christ's ministry. It's an event where what Christ says 
helps inform our understanding of how he fulfills the purpose and work of God, but also he shows us how he fulfills the purpose and work of God. So Jesus gives us the audio and the video of why he came. He shows us precisely what needs to be done, what must be done, and he does exactly what God the Father intended him to do in order for Jesus to bring fulfillment to God's amazing plan of redemption. Where do we begin? You can look there, verse 1 of chapter 2. We begin in the small village of Capernaum, located on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, It appears from what we read in the Gospels that Capernaum was the main hub of Jesus' ministry. The home base, if you will. It says here that he is at home. This might sound like this is Jesus' home. More likely, this is the home of Peter where Jesus was staying. Yet, this is the place where Jesus often stayed. Here it is in this house where this house, this home is swarmed by a crowd. There's no more room. People were coming to Jesus from all over the region. The house is full up of people. There wasn't even any room at the door anymore. The idea is there was no way to get close to Jesus. It's packed. And there is Jesus in the house doing what Jesus does so often. He's preaching the word to them. Jesus is a preacher. It's the main focus of his ministry. Remember that Jesus says that he came to preach, and so people need to hear the word of the Lord, and it's coming directly from the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's coming directly from the agent of creation himself. It's coming from the word made flesh. Wouldn't we have loved to have heard that sermon? I'll tell you, it is infinitely better than this sermon. And it was teaching, as the people in Mark 1.27 said, this is a new teaching with authority. This is like nothing we've ever heard before. No one talks like this. There was another group that day that came to Jesus. Four men collectively carrying a paralytic. This would have been a man who was lame. He did not have the ability to walk. And we see there in verse 4 that they could not get near to Jesus because there were so many people. There was no path, no chance to force their way through the crowd to get to Jesus. There were just too many people. So what did they do? They found a way. Nothing would deter them, nothing would stop them, nothing would get in their way to get to Jesus. A crowd, that won't stop us. Stairs up to the roof, that's not going to stop us. A roof, it's not going to stop us. We are going to get to Jesus. The sheer determination and persistence of these five men is astounding. How many obstacles might block your path to Jesus and too easily we give up or we give in? Well, 
I guess I just can't get to Jesus. It's just too hard. There are too many obstacles in my way. It's not worth the effort. I don't really want to be persistent. It's just too difficult. Maybe I'll come back later. Maybe it'll be easier later. Maybe there'll be less obstacles later that I can get to Jesus. Maybe there's an app where I can put my name on the waiting list so I don't have to wait when I get there. Do you give up too easily when there are obstacles in your path to Jesus? How many people don't even need obstacles in their path? (laughs) They have no obstacles, yet even with a clear path, they still will not come to Jesus. It's not convenient. I'm too busy. Something else is more pressing. Something else needs my attention. I just don't feel like it. I found something more fun, more enjoyable, something that is more satisfying to my flesh. It's raining out today. I feel tired. There are No external obstacles, but the obstacles of a complacent and apathetic heart. The obstacle of unbelief. The obstacle of the flesh. Not even the obstacle of safety would keep these men from Jesus. You know, guys... I don't know if it's really safe for you to get up on the roof and carry a paralytic with you. Don't put this man in harm's way. There must be another way. There must be a less risky way. There must be a safer way. No, Christians are those who are willing to deconstruct the house if need be in order to get to Jesus. And so here are these four men who they have to carry this paralytic up these stairs, up to the roof. The roof would have been a flat roof. And they start to take off the tiles of the roof, or they start to take off the thatch that has been laid down on the roof in order to get to Jesus. And there's Jesus, perhaps with bits of ceiling falling down before him. Jesus looks up to see a hole in the roof large enough for the men to let down this paralytic through on his bed. And there is the paralytic descending from the roof, coming into the very presence of Jesus. And what a sight for Jesus to behold. And what did he see? What did Jesus see in this moment? It says it right here. Verse 5, And when Jesus saw their faith, It was a collective faith, the faith of these four men and this paralytic, faith that was made visible for Jesus to see what it really was. Would we ever see faith from those who are wholly committed to Jesus Christ? This is faith made visible. Would we ever display this kind of faith? That someone would see it and say, ah, that's it. I know what that is. That's faith. How are we going to display this this kind of commitment 
this holy devotion to Jesus Christ. Don't we often display that even in our commitment and devotion to Christ's body, to his church? Faith seen by our presence of being together, faith seen by our involvement with each other, faith seen by our relationships, faith seen by our service, faith seen by our giving, faith seen by our ministering to one another. And what is seen is seen to be a collective faith. And I believe right here that there's a sense of irony in this event. What kind of faith was exhibited by these five men? A faith that trusted in the mission of Jesus and believed in his power to deliver from trouble. They believed who Jesus was, and what Jesus was able to do in that moment. Faith puts a personal and childlike weight on God's existence, presence, will, and power. So right there, in what I said, listen again. Faith puts a personal and childlike weight on God's existence, presence, will, and power. Do you spot the irony? Here is a paralytic being lowered down through the ceiling to Jesus. He could not put weight on his own legs. He could not trust his own body to support him. Here, he and his friends are casting all of their weight, putting all of their trust in Jesus because he alone could deliver, he alone could save, he alone could heal, he alone would support this man because this man was completely incapable and unable to support himself. It is to this faith and this recognition of their own condition that Jesus responds, Son, your sins are forgiven. It's right here that we begin to see how Jesus fulfills the purpose and work of God. So, Three reasons why we see this here in our text. You can follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful. Number one, Jesus fulfills the purpose and work of God because he sees our problem. Jesus fulfills the purpose and work of God because he sees our problem. There before Jesus lays a paralytic, man who can't walk, obvious problem, And imagine what our first thought might have been when Jesus makes such a proclamation about the forgiveness of sins. Think about what this paralytic thought. Jesus, thank you for forgiving my sins, but there's another problem, in case you hadn't noticed. (laughs) I can't walk. My feet and legs don't work. Jesus, I came to you for healing. I came so that you would make me better. After all that the four friends had gone through to lug this man up the steps, to deconstruct the house, to lower him down through the roof, do you think they breathed a sigh of relief when Jesus said, Son, my sins, your sins are forgiven? We did all of that for that? Jesus saw 
a greater reality than merely physical and external problems. He saw the spiritual reality of this man, and the spiritual problem was greater than the physical problem. His spiritual problem is the same problem that resides in the heart of every person. It's the problem of sin. Every person is born a sinner before God. Their sin, our sin, is an offense against God. We have gone our own way, breaking the letter or the spirit of His commandments. We have rebelled against His rule. We have spurned His holiness. And sin is what separates us from God. That is the problem. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. And our sin against an infinitely holy God rightly deserves a just and infinite punishment. Do you have problems in your life? Do those problems ever fill up your gaze? Like they consume your mind? Your heart? What problems do you have right now that might seem like insurmountable mountains? What problems are filling your life with darkness? You have a problem with your spouse? With your kids? Problem at work? Problem with your finances? Problem with relationships, health problems. How these and many other problems could fill up our gaze and dominate our lives. And how we would run to Jesus and say, Jesus, fix all of these problems. They're, they're overwhelming. I can't handle it. I can't make it through. Take these problems away. But has he ever dealt with the greatest problem that resides in your heart? Has he ever dealt with the problem of sin? The most significant problem. The problem that if not remedied, we are lost forever. The problem of sin, that spiritual reality can exacerbate and worsen all of those other problems that you experience. Do you see what Jesus sees? The paralytic's greatest problem was his sin. Our greatest problem is our sin. And where do we struggle? Where do we wrestle with this? We wrestle with this because we don't think our sin is that bad. We don't think it's really that big of a problem. And let's be honest. How big of a problem is your sin? Because of your sin, you deserve to die. And I deserve to die. For the wages of sin is Humans, we have a problem. A 
great problem. A big problem. A problem that we can never remedy or fix ourselves. A problem that deserves death. But Jesus fulfills the purpose and work of God because, number two, he supplies the remedy of forgiveness. He supplies the remedy of forgiveness. Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus, like a skillful surgeon, gets to the heart of the problem, the central issue. He gets to the cancer that needs to be cut out. What a word of comfort from the lips of Jesus. This is what the people had been waiting for. This is what they had been promised all the way back in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah warned of coming judgment. Judgment that was to fall on the people because of their sins. The outlook was dire. They were despairing. Is there any way out from this judgment of God that was justly going to fall upon them because they rebelled against God? Was there any way out at all? And God comes with words of consolation to them in Isaiah 40 when he says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that what? Her iniquity is pardoned. Comfort, comfort my people with these words. The comfort and the relief that these people needed, that we need, comes through the pardon and the forgiveness of sin. What rejoicing, what excitement, what praise should result from such a statement. But what does Jesus meet in that moment? He meets skepticism, unbelief, hardened hearts. And on one level, we can understand why. These scribes here were experts in the Old Testament Bible, in the law. They knew it inside and out, and they were incredulous that Jesus would speak in these kind of terms. Who does he think he is? In their hearts, they begin to accuse him of blasphemy. Why? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Are they right? Yes. Let's think again for a moment about sin. When we sin, whom do we sin against? We sin against God. And in a certain sense, we can say we sin against him exclusively. Do you recall King David who sinned by sleeping with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba? Impregnating her? Then murdering her husband? Who did David sin against? Did he sin against Uriah? Certainly, yes. Did he sin against Bathsheba? Again, yes. Did he sin against his own household? Yes. Did he sin against the whole nation whom he was supposed to lead and shepherd? Yes. But Psalm 51 
David cries out in repentance because of this action that he has done. And what does he say? This is Psalm 51.4. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David sees just how heinous and horrendous his sin is. It is an exclusive attack and offense to God. Only the one sinned against is able to forgive. If this man's sins are exclusively against God, how is Jesus able to pronounce forgiveness? What's more, the forgiveness of sin is tied to the very name and the very identity of God. Here's what happened when the Lord passed before Moses in Exodus 34. The Lord proclaimed his name, saying this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, and then what? Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The Lord, Yahweh, the Almighty God, is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and he is forgiving. If you know God, not just know about God, if you know God, then you know his forgiveness. And you have to know forgiveness because forgiving is who he is. We read this all over the place in the Old Testament. Psalm 32.5, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will, tra- I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Psalm 103.3, the Lord forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases. Psalm 130, verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Isaiah 43.25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. God alone forgives sin. And the minds of these scribes, Jesus is blaspheming because he is taking this divine right, this divine prerogative, this divine work and pronouncement upon himself. He is not saying God forgives you. He is saying, I forgive you. I am pardoning your sin. I am forgiving you of all your iniquity. The scribes knew what Jesus said, and it made them question in their hearts. Literally, it was disturbing to their hearts. It agitated them. But the scribes were speaking in their hearts better than they knew. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Bingo! Who is this that is before you? This is God. Jesus is God. He takes this divine prerogative upon himself because he is divine. And he again proves it. Jesus proves that he is God. Why? He looks into their hearts. He sees who they really are. He knows their own thoughts. Terrifying. Jesus knows your thoughts and my thoughts perfectly. He knows your sincerity or your falseness. He knows everything in you. Who is it that accurately judges all the intentions of your inner person? It's God. And Jesus goes right to their hearts, 
hearts that are opposed to him, hearts that are quick to accuse him, hearts that are unwilling to accept what he is saying. Oh, how in their sin these scribes are in need of forgiveness. And there is something utterly amazing and astounding about this word forgiveness. It is in a tense that is called the perfect tense. We don't really have this kind of tense in English. But this idea of forgiveness is that it is a completed action now in the present with ongoing and future implications. So when Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven, he is saying this action of forgiveness and pardon is completed now and it will have ongoing implications into the future. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. It's a completed action in the present, but the implications of our forgiveness go on into the future. No, better than that, the implication of our forgiveness goes on into eternity. Once forgiven, always forgiven. Our forgiveness unites us and binds us together as God's people. Who are we? We are the forgiven. The whole of our forgiveness, a forgiveness that covers all our sins, past sins, present sins, future sins. This is a forgiveness that never leaks. No one can punch a hole in it. Forgiven means, because of Christ, God will never hold your sins against you. He will never will recall them to his mind and throw them in your face. He will never hold them over your head and scold you. When you turn to Christ and receive the forgiveness that he gives, it is a full pardon. Complete forgiveness. Forgiveness for the vilest offender who truly believes. And this forgiveness that is in the perfect tense is also passive, which means this forgiveness is not something that this paralytic gave to himself. Forgiveness needs to come from outside of us into our lives. Forgiveness is not something that you need to supply to calm and satisfy your own soul. You need someone else to supply it. The one that you have exclusively sinned against. What about those people who wrestle with forgiveness and they say something like, I struggle with forgiveness because I just can't forgive myself. Struggles in the past, ghost in the closet, shame, guilt. And they're going round and round again in circles. Despairing, heartbroken, 
because they feel like they just can't forgive themselves. They need a forgiveness better than what they can give. They need a forgiveness that comes from Christ. Listen, th there are people who they do awful things and they never come to their senses. They are self-deceived. Could it ever be that the people who would say that I just can't forgive myself are deceived because what they really need is not a forgiveness that comes from within themselves. They need a forgiveness that comes from without of themselves and into their lives to forgive them fully, finally, and completely. They need a greater reality that comes to them from God than the reality that they want to create in their own hearts and minds. They need a forgiveness that is bigger and better and more secure and more final and more complete than anything that they could ever do for themselves, ever. No matter how long they live, no matter how long that they try, they need to realize and we need to realize like we are the prodigal son. We've asked for the inheritance. We've squandered the inheritance. We were eating out of the pigsty. We remember that our father's servants are eating better than we're eating. And so we're making our way back to the father. And the father is there looking for his son, scanning the horizon. And what happens? The father sees his son. And the father runs to his son and before the son can even get any words of confession out of his mouth, the father embraces him and kisses him profusely and says, let's have a party. Go kill the fattened calf because my son who was dead is alive. That's what happens when we are forgiven. The prodigal son comes home. The dead son is made alive because Jesus supplies the remedy of forgiveness. Number three, Jesus fulfills the purpose and work of God because he reconciles man to God. Jesus fulfills the purpose and work of God because he reconciles man to God. Finally, Jesus says to the scribes, I know you're questioning your hearts. I know what you're thinking. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? What are we to make of this question? Let's read it carefully. Jesus does not ask which is easier to do. If that were the question, which is easier to do, to forgive sins or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Well, from a heavenly, godly perspective, there is no degree in God. Neither. Neither is more difficult. They're the same. Because it's not more difficult for God to forgive sins than it is for Him to say, rise, take up your bed and go home. But what does Jesus ask? Which one is easier to say? 
from our human perspective, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Nobody can test it. Nobody knows, right? But if you say, rise, take up your bed and go home, and the paralytic just lays there, you're shown to be a phony real quick. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no test. From a human perspective, it's more difficult to say rise, take up your bed, and go home because it's verifiable to the naked eye. How do they know if the paralytic has really been forgiven or not? They don't. The command To command a lame person to walk, however, can be tested. And Jesus takes these two miracles, forgiveness of sin, which is a miracle. Say it again. Forgiveness of sin, which is a miracle. <laughs> and a paralytic rising up and walking again. Jesus takes these two miracles and he puts them together. He says, I'm going to perform this external miracle so that you know, so that you have proof that the internal miracle has taken place. So that you know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus again says, uses his favorite title for himself, the Son of Man, coming from Daniel 7, the Son of Man who rides on the clouds demonstrating that he is divine, but also that he receives this kingdom from the ancient of days, this one who has everlasting dominion. Jesus, the Son of Man, has authority. He can command sins to be forgiven, and guess what? They are. He will also command this paralytic to rise. Jesus is showing that he is the one in whom the saving rule and reign of God has finally come into the world. And so he does both miracles. He does the external visible miracle. He does the internal invisible miracle. And Jesus is able to sovereignly make the pronouncement of forgiveness of sins and make a lame man walk. And all of this, all of this is pointing to the work that Christ is going to do on the cross. That is how, that is how sin is going to be forgiven. That is how people are going to be made whole again. It comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. It's in Him who we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. It is He Himself who bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. For we were strained like sheep, but now we have returned to the overseer and shepherd of our souls. It is through the cross that we are reconciled and brought back to God. It's through the cross where he, Christ, was made to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God. He is the only way to be declared righteous in the eyes of God. He is the only way to be forgiven before God. He is the only way to be at peace with God. 
This is at the heart of the gospel. 1 John chapter 1. If you want to turn there with me for a moment in your Bible. 1 John chapter 1. Verses 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Who is John writing to? He's writing to Christians. He's writing to believers. He's writing to people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he says to them, if you say you have no sin, you're deceived. And the truth is not in you. But what? Verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How much unrighteousness are we cleansed of if we confess our sins? All of our unrighteousness. This is at the heart of the gospel with the reformers who would use this Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator. Simul means simultaneously, at the same time. Justus, or if you read it, justice means righteous or just. Et and peccator, a sinner. It means this, at the same time, righteous and a sinner. How is that able to happen? How is it able to happen that a sinner is able to be a sinner and righteous at the same time because the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been imputed and given to them and credited to their account? Because it's the blood of Jesus that covers us. Because it's now when God looks at us, those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, they, he sees his righteousness, not our righteousness. And so we can come and we can say, we confess our sins together, collectively, individually. We are those people as Christians who come to confess our sins. Is that your life? Is that our life collectively? We do not want to be those who are deceived. We want to be those who are continually reminded that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not that we want to sin. but it is a reminder that we still do sin. And yet we do not want any sin to get in our way with our relationship with the Lord. What good news Jesus is proclaiming. Salvation has come. Redemption is here. 
Freedom is realized. Hope is on the horizon. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus fulfills the purpose and work of God because it is Jesus and Jesus alone who is able to bring you back to God. And so now, if you know him, you know how he has fulfilled the purpose and work of God, and so therefore you have a reason to live. You have a purpose. You have meaning. You are able to fulfill your chief end, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your word would do its perfect work among us here this morning. There's someone, Father, who needs um, this forgiveness, who does not know this forgiveness. I pray that they would run to Jesus today, that they would put all of their faith and trust in Him, like the paralytic and these men, that they would cast all of their weight upon Jesus Christ. That they would hear these words, my child, your sins are forgiven. And that they would know they are no longer condemned before you, but they are free. Free from guilt, and they are innocent in your eyes because of Jesus Christ. Father, that is the standing that we need to rely upon today as those who do know you as those who still sin, as those who still sometimes fall short, we realize that because our faith is in Christ, we no longer are receiving what we justly deserve because of our sins, but all of the punishment, all of the wrath of God that we deserve fell upon Christ. He paid the penalty for us. He died in our place so that we might receive your righteousness, his righteousness. So, Father, I pray that today, whatever obstacle might be in our way, whatever might seem too difficult for us to want to come and find Jesus, I pray that we would have this desire, determination. Nothing's going to stop us from following Jesus. Nothing's going to stop us from following Him, living for Him, giving ourselves to Him each and every day. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.